This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live show for courageous conversations. Tonight, I'm going to be speaking with Diane Aronsaft about donor-assisted parenting. It's part of our ongoing series about 21st century families. Infertility is rising, and lesbian and gay couples are increasingly seeking to have children. So many couples are turning to a donor to provide the egg, sperm, or embryo itself to help them have a child. In a year when Mississippi voters just rejected the definition of an embryo as a person, more and more scrutiny is being directed to clinics that help create and store embryos. But of interest today is the experience of parenting the children that donors have helped to create. My guest, Dr. Diane Aronsaft, is a developmental and clinical psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area who specializes in working with assisted reproductive technology families. She's the author of the book, Mommies, Daddies, Donors, Surrogates, Asking Tough Questions and Building Strong Families. And she's lectured and published nationally and internationally on the subject. She also does research and is a founding member of the Reproductive Technology Study Research Group at the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California. Welcome to Safe Space, Diane. And thank you so much for having me. So how did you get interested in this subject? What were the questions that you had about it that really drew you to it? I got interested in the subject because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> that is, uh, this is the 1980s, and many families were coming to me who had conceived their babies using some form of assisted reproductive technology. And I realized as a clinical psychologist, I really did not know what all the issues were for the families. So I began listening. And I thought the only way to learn about it is to study it. So I began re doing research in the 1980s to ask the essential question, how can we help these families uh, be the best they can be in, at that time, it was a very newfangled way, it felt, to have, uh, to make a family. I think for, for many people, it still feels like a newfangled way. Absolutely. It's, it's gotten older-fangled, <laughs> but <laughs> it, uh, as we move into the 21st century, there are more and more families that are being built using some form of egg donor, sperm donor, or donated embryo. And I suppose everybody listening today will probably know of somebody or have contact with somebody who has built their family this way, but they may not know it because not everybody talks about it. And why don't they talk about it? How come? Um, there are social prejudices against... Uh, these ways of making babies. Some people believe it is against nature or against God. And some people just have a general feeling it's just too weird that the way it's supposed to work is man meets woman, they get married, have a uh, sexual relationship which creates a baby. And that's, uh, that doesn't happen in egg donor, sperm donor, and embryo donated families. And people have something what I call um, negative attitudes, reproductive technophobia. <laughs> right, it's almost a stigma in itself. It is almost a stigma in itself. And also, originally, these forms of reproductive technology were developed for infertility. And specifically, 
infertile men uh, who were shooting blanks, essentially. And for men in our culture, uh, being able to make a baby is a sign of virility, so there was a lot of shame around male infertility. And uh, it got implanted then that if you do uh, have a baby in this way, uh, you can just hide it and don't tell anyone. And when we hide things and don't tell people about them, it usually indicates that there's something wrong or shameful about it. Right, it works both ways. If something's shameful, we want to hide, and if we hide, exactly. it tends to make it more shameful. Yes, and so it's, it sounds like in some ways it's also born of a feeling of failure, that if I, something's wrong with me, if I can't do this, if I can't reproduce, it is definitely born uh, of a feeling of failure, and I also want to now transfer it over to women who are having trouble conceiving. There's a tremendous amount of disappointment, anguish, uh, and certainly shame about not being able to get pregnant. In fact, uh, some of the studies and some of the personal reports from women say, this is worse than having cancer. Yes, I... I... I've heard that myself. It's very poignant because it goes on and on. and One attempt followed by another, failed attempt followed by another attempt. It's such a, a roller coaster of getting your hopes up. So Yes, and so if, if you finally do get pregnant, you almost just want to believe that it's your baby from your body. So it's not just the reproductive technophobia from the outside, but also your inside feelings that you want so much for this baby to be yours uh, that you might even try to forget about in your own mind that it didn't come from your genes and your gametes. As you called that once, honey, I shrank the donor. <laughs> yes, there is something called honey, I shrank, the, uh, I shrank the donor, which is there is no egg donor. There's just uh, a dish of eggs. There is no sperm donor. There's just a vial of sperm not attached to a person. And uh, as one woman said to me, she said, somebody stopped me in the street and asked about my baby, who was an egg donor baby. Uh, is uh, is that your baby? Because she was a much older mother, and she looked in the person's eyes and said, absolutely, yes, I, uh, this is my baby. I made this baby. And she said to me later, well, I bought the egg, so I figured that counts. But that moment must have felt so poignant to her. Yes. This, yes, this real question of, like, do I, can I claim this baby as my baby or not? Well, and that's our prejudice in our culture in terms of blood is thicker than water, that although we really support adoption and we support all kinds of relationships and step families, when push comes to shove, we privilege blood relations over non-blood relations. So when your baby didn't come from your blood, your blood may have fed uh, the baby, but it didn't really come from your blood. Uh, there is a lot of disappointment and wish that it had been otherwise. And I think that our culture really reinforces that with the prejudice against this new way of having babies. It's almost like a feeling of illegitimacy somehow. Exactly. And I, I should say it's not such a new form of having babies. The first sperm donor baby was born in the 1880s. I had no idea. And how common is it today? I mean, how how many people are we talking about here? We don't know. And the reason we don't know is that, at least in this country, there are no statistics. We can try and compile statistics from different uh, agencies 
who provide services, but we don't have, for example, a national registry that registers the number of babies born this way. So we have estimates, and particularly for sperm donor babies, because you can do it at home with uh, in the old-fashioned days, a turkey baster, a baggie, and uh, some sperm. We can only say rough estimates that it's um, somewhere between the 1% and 10% range. That's fascinating. I mean, just the fact that there's no national registry speaks to some of the issues of stigma, because one imagines that if, if there wasn't stigma, that this would be absolutely clear and researched and studied and statistically analyzed. Exactly. Exactly, and uh, the in the United States, originally when it was an issue of male infertility and uh, using someone else's sperm, the message to the couple, and these were always couples, were uh, after the don- uh, sperm donation and um, was collected and the sperm was transferred into the woman's uterus, the message to the couple from the reproductive endocrinologist is, now go home make love, and forget this ever happened. Right, so that leads us to the next subject I want to explore about this, which is what it's like for the two members, if we're of a couple, whether they're heterosexual or not, where one of them is the biological parent and one of them isn't, and issues of, of genetic asymmetry and how couples struggle with that, how they work that out. Uh, it can be the best of worlds and the worst of worlds, <laughs> is what I would say, depending on how people work it out. And I always emphasize it's really helpful to think about these things before you get started. Uh, it'll still change through the experience and through your children's lives, but if you pre-think some of these things, it really is a good it really is a good insurance policy for better outcomes because what you can often have is yes, genetic asymmetry which evolves into one parent feeling that he or she is more the parent than the other parent. And it can happen in subtle to very overt ways. Uh, Traditionally, it happened in, um, for example, in some families, sperm donors were uh, often medical students who were high-achieving and um, did very well academically. And then there was a child born with a woman's egg and an outsider's sperm. And the child turns out to surpass her father or academically in school. And the prejudice often was that that's because this child uh, is smarter than the dad because it didn't come from the dad and that the dad is less than equal in that way to the child or even to the mother. So that would be an example of genetic asymmetry and its effects on a parent. But often it's just, whose baby is this? Yours, mine, or ours? And it should be ours, not a yours or a mine. But as I was saying, when we privilege genetics and uh, blood over social relationships, it's easy to fall into that trap. Also, legally, there's been... um, a real problem, particularly for same-sex couples having a baby, that the non-genetic parent has no legal rights. Although I think you you once referenced a couple where the a lesbian couple where one was the the biological mother, one was the womb mother, and I it didn't I I seem to recall that the womb mother had the legal rights because she was the mother on the birth certificate. That is correct. That um, there are 
are um, certain lesbian couples where one mother will uh, use donate use their her egg. She's not donating it, but she's they're using her egg, but it's implanted in the other mother's uterus. So they actually both have a biological relationship to the child, uh, but only one has a genetic relationship. And in most states. In the United States, it is the uh, woman who delivers the baby who has the legal rights over the child. So even in heterosexual couples, they sometimes have to adopt their own baby uh, if, for example, they used a surrogate to have a baby. But, yes, the womb mother would have more legal rights than the egg mother. It's... And I, what I understand is that there's no national laws about this yet, that this is an area that remains almost entirely unlegislated. That is correct. We have no federal regulations around the legal rights uh, and responsibilities uh, of both parents, of donors. Uh, we have from state to state different regulations. For example, in some states, as long as you do the donation in a doctor's office, the donor can make no legal claims to the baby as theirs. But in other states, that's not true. So people really need to do their homework. People really need to do their homework. And in addition to thinking about if there's two parents, how they're going to relate to each other, and will they both consider themselves full parents to the baby, which I argue they are, that the two people who thought about having the baby together, those are the real parents, but also how they're going to relate to the donors, um, how they're going to include the donors in their child's life or not, and also making clear in advance the legality of it. So I always recommend that people meet with an attorney. And drop their own sort of personal legal arrangement. Exactly. Uh-huh. So I want to ask you now about how issues of genetic asymmetry play themselves out in terms of couples' feelings about disclosing to the child that, in fact, one of the parents is not actually the biological parent, or in cases of donor embryos, both are not. And it, but, in, but if we're going with gen- genetic asymmetry, let's just stay with either donor egg or donor sperm. How um, how how couples struggle with this and sort of what can be helpful to them in thinking through issues about when and how to disclose? It usually goes in the direction that the non-genetic parent feels more uncomfortable or worried about disclosing, and their fear is that their child will basically reject them or not believe they're the real parent. And that they sometimes can feel in competition with the genetic parent there. And sometimes when there is disclosure, it's often left up to the genetic parent to tell the story to the child, which I would never advocate. I would say it's important for both parents to do it together. Uh, But it usually is in the direction of that the non-genetic parent feels more uncomfortable telling. But it's not always that way. And I have had, I've worked with one family, for example, where it was a sperm donor, uh, a dad who suffered from infertility, and a mom, and her egg, and she gave birth to the baby, and she didn't. She was the one who didn't want to tell because she thought it was all too weird and icky and that her daughter would think she uh, committed adultery. And she was anxious about her daughter ever thinking that about her oh. and didn't want to tell where the dad was saying, I feel so ingenuine that I am presenting 
a false truth to my child. I mean, I'm a false truth, a falsity to my child, and I really want her to know. And so it can go in either direction. Is there a consensus in the field about at what age, ideally, a couple would start telling their child about this? There is absolutely no consensus in the, in the field about when to tell. There's increasing consensus in the field, but it's still not universal about telling at all versus not telling. Uh, but mostly the movement, at least in the United States and in other Western European countries, has been towards telling. Uh, and certainly that's true in Australia and New Zealand as well. But then we get to when's the best time to tell, and there's three different schools of thought. One is uh, go f learn from the adoption field, tell very early, begin t talking about it even before your child can understand the words so you feel comfortable with the story and your child gets used to the rhythm of the words. The second is wait till you're bonded to the child and feel firmly attached and your child can understand even a little bit what that means. So wait till the preschool age when they begin to ask where do babies come from. And some people say, no, that's too confusing. Wait till school age when they understand a little about the science of reproduction and that's the best time to tell, maybe six to ten. Most everybody agrees that if you're going to tell, adolescence is the worst time to start. That you know that kids are in the middle of an uh, their identity issues and sorting out who they are, and to suddenly find out that who they thought they were for 11, 12, 13, 14, or more years is pulled out from under them, they will feel betrayed, confused, and angry. So don't wait till then if you can avoid it. And do you have a do you have a position that you prefer, Diane? What do you, do you have a, a recommendation after your years of clinical experience that seems to My work out? WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and I'm speaking with Dr. Diane Aronsaft about donor-assisted parenting. So I want to switch now to a focus on how these things affect the children. We've been talking mostly about the impact on the parents. And I want to talk about what it's like to hear this news. So if the child has heard this all their life or hears it a little bit later in life, what are the ways that this news can impact a child? Well, I would back it up to say that if a child is told, so knows the information, and perhaps even if they're not, every child who is conceived uh, using donors, 
common with every other child conceived the same way. One, they will be a product of science, not sex. Two, they will have an outside party who is not their parent who was involved in their conception. So when we have both those two facts, all of the children, whenever they're told, are going to be grappling with three things. The first one, well, am I different then? And that's an issue of self-concept. The second thing is, oh, well, and who do I belong to? And that's an issue of an attachment. Of attachment. And the third is, well, and who am I? And those are issues of identity. So a child told will be grappling with all those three things with the information. And each child will do it differently, and I've never seen two children you know, you know, respond and have it have the same meaning for them. It definitely depends on how they're told. So if it's told as a story filled with shame and disappointment, a child can have to take that on in their responses. Um, mommy uh, didn't like the way I was conceived, and that wasn't so good. But if it's a tale of pride or just told neutrally, like, you know, we want to have a baby, this is how we went about having you, a child does much better if it's either neutral or very positive rather than I wish I could have had you another way and my body was broken and um, so we couldn't find another way and so we had you this way and I wish it wasn't. That's a very different tip. Makes sense. So when you, I'd like to take each of those three things one at a time because they really interest me. So the first you talk about is am I different in this sense of self-concept and um, do kids come away feeling like they're different? And what are the ways that they would say, and maybe some of the people you've worked with, how do they feel different? Well, the way they, and I would want to say they might feel unique <laughs> in that they weren't uh, conceived the same way Tommy was down the street. Right. And that they have a donor involved in their life who they may never meet, and they may, ne may never know that person's name or that donor may be part of their family uh, or somebody they see every day. But what they will, uh, around being different, is that they will be having somehow to figure out, well, how do all these people fit together? My parent or parents and my donor or donors. And they're... Um, there was a, in the Bay Area, this was quite a while ago, there's a group of kids from a particular high school all discovered they were uh, sperm donor babies. And they formed a club with each other around their uniqueness. Uh, then they called themselves the tubers. <laughs> and I can imagine one of the things they might do is talk with each other about, do you want to know who your donor is? And how could you find out? And what is it like if you can't find out? Exactly. And, uh, you know, and there are some kids who around, you know, am I different, will say, yeah, you know, that's, that's how I was conceived, no big deal, and uh, pass the ketchup. And there might be another kid who is their friend where it is a critically important piece of information for them that really centers their life for a while at different times in their life and something they want to talk about and think about. Uh, so it 
really varies from kid to kid and from family to family. You talk about a kind of experience of genealogical bewilderment. You have all these great phrases, Diane, and about sort of what it's like to not be able to find your donor, that in fact donors' anonymity can be protected more so now than than birth parents for adoptive kids. And um, maybe you could speak a little bit about what that bewilderment experience is like. Absolutely. And, um, it, you know, it comes also from the adoption field of children who know nothing of their birth parents and don't know really, um, you know, the kind of the, their own genetic histories. And then we move over to assisted reproductive technology. And in terms of the genealogical bewilderment, I'm going to stick with the families where there are, uh, one parent is right there who is a genetic parent, and the other half of the genes are missing. So the child doesn't know uh, the donor or will never meet the donor. And that child is typically, if going in search of a donor, not looking for a parent, but they're looking for a mirror of themselves. They want to get some sense of themselves, just even physically, reflected back uh, from the person who is responsible for half their genes. And if you can't get that, you always are traveling around with a missing piece. And so the argument is, if we're talking about the best interests of the kids, it is really best for them to be able to have access, if they choose and want it, to get some information about their donor. Uh, and that you have to do with the new identity release programs. And it may be only when they reach the age of majority, but that someday they will know they will be able to get that mirror and get that reflected back to them and learn more about that part of their histories. Also, they're not just for psychological reasons, certainly increasingly for medical reasons. Right, to learn about what risk factors they have. Exactly. And and that's quite important. So, something I've learned from the adoptive field is that so often the parents can feel threatened by the child's wish to know who their birth or their donor parent, their donor was. And I want to quote something that you wrote, which I really found helpful. If the child has a strong desire to find the birth other, not to find, it's not to find a long lost parent or to replace the existing ones, but it's to lay claim to one's own heritage and future. And I found that very powerful, really trying to reduce how threatening it can be to the parents. It, yes, it's extremely, uh, not, I shouldn't say for every parent, because many parents are just fine with it. But when it's threatening, there is this fantasy on the parent's part often that that very nice man or very nice woman who helped us make you is now that you are here going to love you as much as we do and come and try to claim you like Rumpelstiltskin. And so the nice person turns into this conniving kidnapper. And then there's also a belief, because every parent feels somewhat imperfect in how they parent, that, you know, my kid at some point is going to want to go in search of that better perfect parent and leave me lying in the dust, uh, particularly if we go back to a feeling of failure that I couldn't conceive you myself. Right, and every parent feels like a failure all too often. Yeah. <laughs> right, in that fear, that fear that they would be looking precisely because I had failed. 
Yeah, and one of the things that I've learned in, in my field is that children at a certain age universally start to have fantasies of the, the family they really came from that's much better than the one they're stuck with. Yes. And even in the best of families, children do this. And so if you're in a position that you, as a parent, don't legitimately feel you can lay claim to your baby, and then you find your child growing and having these fantasies about this wonderful family out there that would be so much better, it can really be like salt in an open wound or knife in the heart for parents. And the thing I always say to parents is, it's just a myth. It's just your fear. It's an urban myth. And you you are as real as it gets. Diane, we're going to have to stop in a minute. If someone wants to learn more from you, um, do you have a website or do you have a place that people, that you'd recommend that people can go to learn more about these issues? Absolutely. I do have a website, which is www.dianearonsaft.com. And uh, I think there's a lot of information in my book, Mommy's Daddy's Donors Surrogates. I would certainly recommend going to the main website of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine that has some very user-friendly links that I think will also be quite helpful to people. That's great. Diane, thank you so much for being my guest. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you so much for having me. This is Dr. Anne on Safe Space. I've been talking to Dr. Diane Aronsaft about donor-assisted families. Diane is the author of the book, Mommies, Daddies, Donors, and Surrogates, Asking Tough Questions and Building Strong Families. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety, please go to our website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can listen to all 121 of our podcasts there. You can subscribe to get weekly notifications. You can also find us and like us on Facebook. Coming up next is Watchdog.